you know, the United States had um, the worst record of any country in the world on how we manage COVID. It's hard to understand why Anthony Fauci is still a hero. We have 4.2% of the global population, and we had 16% of the COVID deaths. So that's not a good record. We had a death rate of about 3,000 people per million population from COVID. And if you look at the countries that were using ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, Nigeria had 14 people per million, one two hundredth of ours. And you can say, well, those are young populations and COVID is a disease of the old, which is true, but the oldest population in the world is Japan, which also allowed access to hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and their death rate was one-tenth of ours. You go around the world, and it, there's such a direct, clear correlation, and the studies are so clear. There were a lot of Americans who died who should not have died. And uh, probably around 650,000, according to Harvey Reich and the other biostatisticians who have looked at um, the, uh, the studies, which are clear. The studies show consistently, over 100 studies, that 85% of the people um, who died should not have died because they were denied early um, treatment. And so I think that's a really important um, issue to address directly. And then, of course, the origins of the virus at Wuhan lab and the cover-up of that, you know, should be addressed. Uh, but I think the censorship is the most important thing. If you don't have censorship, if you have, you know, uh, the press doing its job, these things would not have happened. Hey everyone, it's Naomi Wolf of Daily Clout, and I'm here with my personal hero, the uh, physician who most recently helped me not die from sepsis in the hospital by giving me day-to-day -day guidance. Um, I'm so fortunate and lucky uh, that, you know, once again, Dr. McCullough helped save my life. He's helped to save the lives of loved ones of mine in the past. Um, with his COVID protocols. Um, and now we're here to talk about an unbelievable medical slash scientific scandal. Welcome, Dr. McCullough. Well, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, it, what happened overnight was uh, amazing. And, and I'm so glad you're, you're allowing me to tell the story. Uh, well, it's, it's extraordinary and it's brand new breaking news. So Basically, the headline at which I'm looking says, Lancet's study on COVID vaccine autopsies finds 74% were caused by vaccine. Journal removes study within 24 hours. And what I will you know, share with everyone is that some of the most distinguished and highly published people in their field, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Harvey Risch, and their colleagues at the Wellness Company, um, published a preprint on Lancet of the, their findings looking at deaths shortly subsequent to um, mRNA vaccine injection. However, less than 24 hours later, the study was removed and a note appeared stating very damagingly to the reputations of the distinguished authors, quote, this preprint has been removed by preprints with The Lancet because the study's conclusions are not supported the study methodology. Dr. McCullough, over to you. What the heck happened? This is a stunning uh, development. So let me uh, lay the context for this. 
I was contacted by a graduate student at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, where I'm also an alumni. And uh, we engaged on a project and I agreed to be the faculty mentor. I was accepted by the University of Michigan. This manuscript idea was accepted. And then what we did is we set out to identify all the published deaths that occurred after the vaccine. And this was quite an endeavor because uh, there could be reports of uh, various cases of kidney disease or liver disease, heart problems. Uh, some, some lived, some didn't, some had autopsy, some didn't. So we started out with hundreds and hundreds of papers, had to search through all these and get it. We got it down to uh, 44 papers that had autopsies and a total of 325 cases. Now, the advantage that we had is in reviewing each case, we now have you know, two and a half years of understanding of the mechanism of what the vaccines do in the human body. And uh, so we were in a sense more advantaged than the original authors. Some of the original papers published, for instance, uh, you know, showed death due to a blood clot but at that time, the authors didn't recognize the vaccines caused blood clots. So each case was reviewed by three expert doctors, including uh, a doctor who's the former um, president of the uh, Royal College of Pathology, Dr. Hodgkinson. So you know, one of the most expert doctors in clinical pathology in the world. And uh, we reviewed them. Three doctors reviewed it. We had to have two out of three agree that the vaccine either was the direct cause of death or significantly contribute to it. Uh, the deaths were very tightly temporally related to receiving the vaccine. And it turned out the majority of them had only a single organ system involved, which was the cardiovascular system. A smaller percentage, about two dozen or so, is what's called multi-system inflammatory disorder, typically in young, very young children or uh, young uh, adolescents. So the paper was finalized. Everyone signed off on it. And then it started to go through the submission process. So it originally was submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which rejected it after a few days. Then it went to the Journal of the American Medical Association, which rejected it, yeah, which rejected it I believe, in about you know, an hour or less. And, but and what reasons did, what no, reasons did no, they no, give? No, the, yeah, the journals say, uh, it's not a priority for us, or you know, they don't give it. It just doesn't even go out for review. So then it goes to Lancet. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I published in Lancet. I've published in Lancet before as an author, so it's not, you know, it's not an uncommon uh, territory for me. Right. So it goes to Lancet. Lancet has it for about three days, and uh, Lancet agrees to have it go up on the preprint server, meaning it's not fully peer reviewed. And then Lancet said, well, you know, we're going to triage it to a lower journal. And it was almost like a, a newsletter. It's called Medical Dialogues. And, and so we respectfully declined that. And so the full paper is under review now with the American Journal of Medicine, another high-level journal. But the commitment to the preprint server, which it would have went on a preprint server anyway, was fine. And so we kept it up on the preprint server. And this, you know, got announced. Before we knew it overnight, the downloads of the full manuscript in the preprint server were by the hundreds per minute. I've wow. never seen a manuscript. It was literally flying off the shelf because the evidence tables are so detailed on every death. There's, I think it's 48 pages total of evidence tables. And so it was literally flying off the shelf at Lancet. 
all over social media. Then this morning we get a notice that you read and said, well, we're taking it down because they said the conclusions are not supported by the methodology. Methodology, you know, we, we lay it out. It's a standard search methodology. I've done this my whole career, uh, standard uh, adjudication and ultimately agreement. And, and again, it's autopsy. So there's not too much to, to disagree with. The autopsy, you know, show a blood clot, they show a heart damage. So the, the interesting thing that occurred though, is if Lancet would have done nothing, this would have been up on the preprint server, the, the paper would be published elsewhere. And, and it and honestly wouldn't have gained the notoriety that it's gained. Wow. So wow, this is all over the world. People are, are basically crying out medical censorship by Lancet. And the question is, who called Lancet? Who actually raised objection to have Lancet do this overnight? Right. Well, that's a very important question. Has the editor of Lancet which under ordinary circumstances as a courtesy would get back to people as distinguished as you and Dr. Rich and, and your third author, the distinguished uh, pathologist. Um, any, any word from the editor? No, in fact, uh, no word from the editor, no courtesy editorial uh, communications at all. We started getting outrage from people you know, all over the world, we, we can't download the paper. They've, they've stopped the download mechanism. Unbelievable. I mean, it's it's just so stunningly um, kind of flagrant an example of a, a corrupted evaluative process that is so fundamental to science and medicine, publishing in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, and the fact that there's not even a pretext, but not just that there's not a pretext, the fact that there was a statement that uh, the study's conclusions are not supported by the study methodology. I mean, that's with no examples. Like in what way? Nothing. Like they, they right. Well, they I think what got them was the was the punchline, the conclusion. The conclusion was seventy three point nine percent of cases when we reviewed them, we thought the vaccine either directly caused the death or significantly contributed. You know, that's right. about that's about three quarters. Now, in a quarter. There were deaths, and there were deaths that I can recall of, uh, you know, let's say a person in hospice for some reason who took the vaccine, and they ended up dying of, you know, their terminal cancer or somebody who feeding tube and had aspirate. It looked like it had nothing to do with the vaccine. So about a quarter of cases, you know, had nothing to do with the vaccine, and that's a fair evaluation. But you, you, you know, seventy-three point nine percent is a big percentage, meaning that meaning that of those individuals found dead now with no explanation and they've taken a vaccine, we know now the majority, uh, if an autopsy was done, it would find the autopsy as a cause of death. Wow. Well, that fills in a gigantic missing piece of what we're seeing all around us because there are these extraordinarily mysterious cases abounding in which people simply, some of them healthy people, young people, are, you know, are found dead in their beds. And so, let me uh, zero in on the group that you examined. It was you found that the average um, time that had elapsed from injection was 14 plus days. So you were really looking at people who died, you know, within a month of having received an mRNA injection. Was that your search criteria for the questions no, you were asking? No, it was really death at any time after taking a vaccine. But remember that the context of these papers coming forward is. People must have thought the vaccine was related because they got an autopsy and they ended up publishing their results. It just yeah. happened 
that uh, uh, you know the, the, the mean time or the average time was within a couple weeks. What we don't know, the big concern is how many deaths occur you know, five months afterwards, six right. months, a year afterwards. Uh, this recent case that really got my attention as a cardiologist is a, a basketball player. His last name is Adamus. Adamus. So yeah. yeah. So he, he has myocarditis in 2021. He's taken out of competition. He actually tweets it out. He said he got effing myocarditis. Uh, I try not to cuss in any of my interviews. Uh, but he, he says that uh, in his tweet. And then uh, apparently he's getting a treadmill test to be sure he's ready to go back. And he dies on the treadmill test. Now, let me tell you, as a cardiologist, I have decades of experience. I've never had a patient die on the treadmill test because we have the defibrillator paddles right there. We can actually resuscitate them right away. So the type of cardiac he, arrest he had must have been incredibly fulminant. And to die two years later after myocarditis sent chills down my spine. Oh, my Lord. Uh, what type of problems are we going to have now as people, you know, move forward? Absolutely. So let me also ask the largest number, the largest category are these cardiac deaths. And you're pretty much the most uh, credentialed cardiologist in America to answer this question. Um, what exactly is the mechanism that leads people a month after getting injected to have heart failure or whatever the damages to the heart or the cardiac system generally that causes their demise? There's two major categories. One is myocarditis or heart inflammation. Mm -hmm. And then the other is progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So let's take myocarditis. Myocarditis is heart inflammation of the muscle. There what happens is the electrical current does not conduct smoothly through that tissue and an abnormal heart rhythm forms and that heart rhythm causes sudden cardiac death. Uh, and that explains the deaths we've seen on the European soccer fields now in these montages, a uh, paper by um, Polycretus and myself, in a stable period before COVID, the number of cardiac arrests we'd see age under 35, pro, semi-pro, European soccer, rugby, 29 cases per year. Since the vaccines, which are mandated on the players, 283 per year. So it's oh been a tenfold increase. And they're not developing heart failure. They're developing these, these collapses, sudden cardiac death. And on the field, in the Polycretus paper, uh, of these cardiac arrests, about a third, if we get the defibrillator out quickly, they can be resuscitated. Two thirds die on the field. Oh my gosh. And, yes. And they're not developing heart failure, and, and in many cases, there's no antecedent symptoms. Uh, it, it's relatively rare for someone to have COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis and have heart failure. I do have one patient in my practice who went all the way to needing a heart transplant at Emory, and then another one, a young man who's in my circles of advice where he had a heart transplant at University of Florida. By the way, both programs refused to recognize the vaccine was responsible for the- oh, Dr. McCullough, I've got to add a tragic anecdote to, to these two anecdotes. Uh, we were contacted by the family of a healthy young man who needed a, a heart transplant after receiving an mRNA injection, and they wouldn't give him the heart transplant unless he had another a booster. It's madness. Well, let's go back to this mechanism. Um, the lipid nano, you know, you know, I'm obsessed with the lipid nanoparticles. Uh, they go everywhere in the body. And 
our team has found that they um, damage electrical conduction in the myelin sheath. So doesn't it stand to reason that they would damage electrical conduction in, in a heart muscle as well? Like how could lipid nanoparticles peppered everywhere in the body, crossing membranes made up of industrial fats, not cause damage to the heart, I guess is my question. Well, you know, two important points there. Again, we're on myocarditis, this first major mechanism. The lipid nanoparticles, when they are taken up by human somatic cells, that is, you know, non-reproductive non -re cells, so that would be uh, heart tissue, other organs, they call what's caused what's called syncytia formation. They actually cause the cell membranes to fuse together. Yeah. Now, the heart is avid for lipids. So, you know, the, the, the skeletal muscles use about 80% glucose and 20% lipid as their fuel. Uh, in the heart, it's just the opposite. It's 80% lipid, 20% glucose. So the heart may preferentially take up lipid nanoparticles more than other tissues. Oh, wow. Of interest, athletes are always exercising. So myocardial blood flow draws more of these particles into the heart for the periods of exercise. And then on top of that, we know that the uh, messenger RNA, you know, on the lipid nanoparticles is circulatory in the body at least a month in a paper published by Castri Yuta and colleagues. So we think that exercise uh, in, in athletes, because we, we hear disproportionately about athletes going down and, and they shouldn't go down, right? So they've all been checked out ahead of time, EKG, echo, we know they're good to go. Uh, it, it, so the only thing that's changed in life is the vaccine. Now, th there, there's a paper by Flavio Catagiani from Brasilia, Brazil, very important paper, that postulates based on all the data, and it came out in our analysis as well, that there are two periods of sudden death in these cases. One is during exercise where there's a surge of adrenaline, which seems to precipitate the abnormal arrhythmia, and also between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And it's interesting, during sleep, you hear about young people dying in sleep, because in 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., there's also a surge of adrenaline during the normal waking process. Oh, my gosh. This is so tragic. And then the second category of cause of death that you found was systemic inflammation. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it's progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So what we know there is there was an American Heart Association abstract First author, I believe, was Guntler, and uh, it was in 2021, and and he had measured a whole variety of blood factors that are known to be related to triggering an atherosclerotic plaque rupture in arteries uh, before and after the vaccine, mm -hmm. and he found astronomical elevations afterwards. Now, this was the American Heart Association, and he concluded, wait a minute, these vaccines are going to provoke heart attacks. Oh They're going to provoke the conventional heart attack and cholesterol blockage, and then suddenly it it, it 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 fissures and fractures and a blood clot forms on it. It's going to trigger a heart attack. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Extraordinary. So this is a apart from the importance and historic nature of the medical scandal of the Lancet censoring a really important paper by very distinguished, much published authors. This is also an historic paper because you and Dr. Rich, Rich and Dr. Hodgkinson, is that correct? Have identified very clearly how and why at least a significant number of people are dying subsequent to the RNA injection. You've, you've zeroed in on exactly the, the mechanism. And I guess, I'm sorry that you're in the middle of a 
pathetic, corrupt medical scandal surrounding you. However, um, I do know that by identifying these causes of death so clearly, you and your co-authors are shining a light on possible treatments, correct? I we are. We're, work, we're working on that feverishly. You know, in every study so far, when we actually get into the tissue and look at what's staining in the tissue, it's the spike protein, the spike protein that's produced from the genetic material. In the United States, of those who took a vaccine, 94% of them took a messenger RNA vaccine, either Pfizer or Moderna. So the genetic code has been installed in the human body. It may be long lasting. It almost certainly is as far as we can tell. The spike protein for sure. Spike protein is produced in an uncontrolled quantity for an uncontrolled duration of time. And because the antibody rises are so large after vaccination compared to the infection and the D-dimer elevations, which is a proxy for spike protein quantity are so much larger. We infer that people have taken the vaccine have gotten a lot more of the deadly spike protein in their body than people have gotten the infection. Particularly if it's early, treated early, we can actually fend off the infection in the nasopharynx. So the spike protein is what's doing the damage. And the big news now is that we have products that can degrade the spike protein. The human enzymes can't seem to digest it or get rid of it. Uh, a Japanese discovery, natokinase, which is the fermentation breakdown product uh, from soy, uh, natokinase, a natural substance. Japanese have been using it for over a thousand years for its health benefits for at least two decades as an oral supplement. Uh, multiple preclinical studies show benefit. We have a manuscript now under review, uh, putting this together clinically. We're using it extensively. A second agent called bromelain, which is another enzyme derived from the stems of pineapples, uh, mm -hmm. works uh, separately from natokinase. And then a third compound derived from turmeric curcumin. In fact, a nano curcumin probably absorbed best. That triad looks good. Even curcumin actually has randomized trials now that people have taken oh, wow. the vaccine. Yeah. So it uh, looks very good. Uh, you know, there are many, many other substances, N-acetylcysteine, and we can go on and on. Uh, but, but the point I'm making is, is the virus is very unnatural. The messenger RNA is synthetic. The spike protein was engineered in a Chinese biosecurity lab. Isn't it interesting that the remedies appear to be natural products. That, that is so interesting. What a, ma what a magical universe. That's extraordinary. <laughs> um, well, let's now go back to the Lancet um, in our last few moments. Is there any kind of oversight mechanism? I mean, these publications uh, accept a great deal of money. They have a huge impact on medical and scientific policy. Um, you know, protocols are based on the studies that they publish. Is there any oversight when a publication like Lancet behaves so unethically and so in violation of its own mission to bring the process of peer review to the practice of science and medicine? I can tell you, I'm a former uh, editor of two major journals, longstanding, multiple decades of experience as an editor. I have never retracted a paper from a journal that I'm editor, associate editor. Why? Because the peer review process, it's fair. And once a paper gets through peer review, it's up for discussion. That's the right. whole reason of publishing a paper. Right. Uh, it, not to have everybody agree with it. We yes. expect disagreement. We expect dialogue. So right. there is an organization called COPE, C-O-P-E, 
that has guidelines for retractions. Now, uh, you know, I've been uh, the victim of a fully published, peer-reviewed, contracted, copyrighted, uh, you know, cited the National Library of Medicine retraction at that stage for no right. reason. Wow. So, uh, you know, I appealed to COPE on that one and they did nothing, nothing happened. Uh, you know, you know Lan the burden of proof of Lancet is they have to prove that it's scientifically invalid. It's not their opinion of the conclusions and the methodology. We, we lay out the methodology. One can, you know, we're supposed to have disagreement on the conclusions. Right. What we saw overnight is we saw an, an amazing rush, a thirst for people who wanted to know the truth. Right. And we saw somebody at Lancet, Lancet probably actually uh, incited by an external force, say, take that down, find any reason to shut it down, we can't let the news get out. Unbelievable. Well, well, we'll certainly be contacting the editor of The Lancet for comment, and we'd be honored to publish your paper, of course, make it as widely available as possible to everyone for free downloads or however you like. But Or where can people find it now? Maybe I should ask you that. The paper now, uh, we are able to, within an hour or two, get it up on another preprint server called Zenodo. So fortunately, okay. Zenodo took it, so it's citable. It has a dated issue. Uh, you know, I've been in the medical publication business for decades now, so I know it really well. And we, we do follow an orderly process. But, but I have to tell you, just at the preprint server level, we had um, MediRx Med, decline yes. it. We, we had Authoria decline it. And now we had uh, Lancet basically take it, demonstrate what a critical gap it's filling, and then have them take it down. So no, Zenodo has it up there. We anticipate, uh, you know, in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we name a biopharmaceutical complex, a syndicate that's working out there to crush any information on vaccine safety. We think this syndicate is active right now. They're looking for this paper and they're trying to kill it so the world doesn't see the data. Unbelievable. Well, before I let you go, I'd like you to summarize for people who are unfamiliar with the role of peer review in science and medicine, what, what might we look forward to in the future if peer review becomes, well, clearly is, the toy of a biopharmaceutical complex and simply doesn't work anymore? What's the danger to science and medicine and, and to all of our health and well-being? Peer review is the process that we trust for papers to come forward revealing valid information so we can interpret it as we approximate truth. In medicine, no one holds information or misinformation. No one, no one holds agency over the truth. We make observations, we, we debate and discuss the results, and then we move forward with more research. We use what's called inferential re research. Now, the peer review process, the average paper that's published travels to eight journals before it's fully accepted. That's mm -hmm. common because there are so many journals. There's such an intensity to publish. Many journals have less than a 10% acceptance rate. That's, that's common. So we expect that. We're on journal number four right now. Uh, uh, what, uh, if this uh, bias persists in the literature right now, it's going to forever change medical history. Medical history may be written that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe, mm -hmm. when indeed they're not. That, that, that can be how intense the bias is. Now, on the side of, of 
publication freedom has been the advent of preprint servers. You know, this just came out with COVID, and it turns out now probably 45% of papers are on a preprint server. They don't get into a peer review journal because the bias is so strong. And you know what? We don't care. We cite the preprint uh, server. And you know what? The CDC is doing the same thing. I reviewed a CDC paper recently, and at least half of the references were preprint server. So if the CDC is doing it and the FDA is doing it, you know, we're doing it too on a preprint server. Uh, we should never have retractions for administrative reasons. And we should allow the peer-reviewed process to go forward uh, uh, uninhibited. And we should never put a paper up on a preprint server or fully publish it. And then based on interest and based on uh, people's reaction, have it taken down for administrative reasons. And we're seeing this time and time again. Absolutely. We've gone back to the days of Galileo. Like we literally have. Like you're not allowed to find something. And you know, it's making me think of, of what Galileo was said to have said on his deathbed, which is nonetheless it moves. You know, nonetheless I was right. You know, all the orthodoxy in the world can't silence the truth and can't stop um, scientific and medical truth from emerging. Dr. McCullough, where do people find you? Go to my website, petermcculloughmd.com. That'll take you everywhere. Book is courage to face covid.com. Substack, that's where all the graphical abstracts are, courageous discourse. Substack, and then finally my podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report. Amazing. And I'm a subscriber to your incredible Substack, and I really encourage everybody to become a paid supporter of Dr. Peter McCullough's and John Leake's beautiful, important Substack, unmissable. Dr. McCullough of The Wellness Company, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for all you do to save everyone's lives. And thank you for and Dr. Rish and Dr. Hodgkinson for standing up for the scientific process and for medical freedom and accuracy. Thank you so much for this important interview and thank you for all you do. Thank you. Bye-bye.